May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. Glad to see you all in worship today. I wonder uh, if you have ever seen uh, on the internet or gotten some sort of you know, email forwarded to you about church bulletin bloopers. Uh, they, they can be hilarious, uh, and uh, there's some great ones out there. Let me, um, let me give you four that are related to worship. Some are, are just poorly worded. Some are typos. You can see. Uh, here's the first. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. Second one, after the sermon, a moment of silence for prayer and medication. <laughs> this evening at 7 p.m., there will be a hymn sing in the park across from the church. Bring a blanket and come prepared to sin. <laughs> and my favorite, this being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. There are dozens out there, and uh, you could do worse than spending an afternoon looking at them, but uh, uh, many of them I would not have the courage to uh, offer you from the pulpit. But uh, they are evidence enough, I think, that it is not hard to get worship wrong. So I wonder, uh, what is worship for you? How would you define worship? Is it the liturgy or the music? Is it the sacrament or the sermon? Is it habit or obligation? Is it joy or nourishment? The late, great Church of England priest and theologian John Stott once wrote that worship is the preeminent duty of the church. And he defined worship by using the words of Psalm 105, verse 3 to glory in His holy name. To glory in His holy name. Which is to say, I think, that the liturgy and the music and the sermon and the sacrament are all tools to help us to glory in His holy name. To help us to revel in the experience of the unique, revealed person of God. And there are, I would think, a lot of implications with that. I mean, there's a sense in which it is our duty as the clergy and staff uh, to make this a nice experience for you with good music and hopefully an engaging sermon and, and good liturgy. But it is your job to make this a nice experience for God, uh, to, to make Him the priority of your heart and your attention. We are reveling in His person, and we are glorying in His name. Now, we should get something out of church. Uh, we want you to leave feeling uplifted. But more than anything, we come to church not for what we get, but for what we give. To get, we come to give praise to God for who He is. And to that end, and really that end alone, uh, we read His inspired Word, and we hear it explained. And we ask Him in prayer uh, for things because He is trustworthy. And we confess the ways that we have not honored Him 
in our lives and we seek to be reformed in his image and we receive his sacramental body and blood and we take him into us as he has taken us into himself. And it's all to glory in him. See, Sunday services are all about worship and worship is all about God and giving him praise. We come to glory in his name. And of course, we can worship anytime and anywhere, not just on Sundays. But I wonder if worship is like that for you. Is worship the experience of glorying in his name and reveling in his character and praising his person and his works? Do you come from more than more of what you get and what you think you need uh, than for what you can offer to God? I mean, sometimes we get it wrong, right? I mean, not we don't ask Miss Lewis to come and lay an egg on the altar. Sometimes your preachers might lay an egg in the pulpit. Hopefully not too often. When, when I say we get it wrong in worship, I don't mean we just have, have a typo in the bulletin. I mean our, our hearts get distracted. Our attention is preoccupied. We're concerned for other things. I, I can remember one time I was growing up and I remember my mother asking a friend, a very good friend of hers, after church, what she thought of the sermon. And without hesitating, the friend said, oh, I don't know, I was working on my grocery list. <laughs> and you know, that's just a funny example, unless, of course, you're working on your grocery list. But um, there are lots of things uh, that get in the way of our glorying in his holy name. In fact, that is what's happening in our gospel passage. Now, we love the Jesus that says, let the children come to me. And we love the Jesus that says, do not fear. We don't really know what to do with this Jesus. <laughs> He's angry. He's making a scene. He may be even being violent. He's turning over tables. He's yelling. He made a whip, y'all. And animals, you can imagine, it's not, he, he, it's not like people are like, oh, sorry, and, and just walked off quietly. There's animals running around. There's people screaming at him. What are you doing? When we encourage you towards Christ-like behavior, this is not the scene we have in mind. <laughs> and this was the Passover festival. It's a, it's a major pilgrimage in which the faithful people come from all over, all over Israel, all over the Mediterranean world in some cases. And part of this important festival was offering an animal for sacrifice, for the forgiveness of your sins. And rather than driving your own ox or, or sheep for 50 or 100 miles, they knew that there were people who could sell them to them in, in Jerusalem. It was a lot, more, a lot more convenient. We can imagine that you could probably get cheaper ones outside the city gates, but then you'd have to drive the animal yourself up the hill into the temple. They might run off. Uh, and so these inside the temple gates were probably sold at a premium because who wants to drive their own ox, right? But the hard, the hard work's already been done for you. Now the Pharisees, they probably weren't too concerned about it because this was likely in the court of the Gentiles, a very expansive area, the outermost court of the temple. And, and it, was, it had been well away from the serious worship of the Jewish men. And, and surely also the temple was receiving a generous cut. So what was Jesus so upset about? It was the distraction to worship. 
I mean, sure, the bleeding of the sheep and the haggling of the prices and the jingling of the coins would have been a distraction to the Gentiles, maybe to the women in the next court over, the court of the women. But it must have been even more than that that had Jesus so angry that He was whipping cords and turning over tables. And it was because they had completely missed the point of worship. I mean, the merchants weren't there to please God or really even to help the, the pilgrims to please God. They were there to turn a buck. And the leaders, they didn't seem to care. Why? Because they were there to turn a buck too. I mean, maybe they were concerned to, to put on a good festival that ran smoothly and turned a profit, rather, but rather than to help people glory in God's holy name. Whatever it was, they had missed the point. They'd taken their eye off the ball. I imagine this would have irritated Jesus at any time, but the fact that this was the Passover festival would have highlighted even more the total miss that they were making in worship. Because as you may know, the Passover was the remembrance of the Lord delivering His people out of Egypt and out of slavery. This is the festival to commemorate what we will read on Monday Thursday in Exodus chapter 12, that the Lord withheld His judgment from His people with the tenth plague when He saw the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the Lord had brought massive judgment upon, the, upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians with the death of the firstborn and then delivered His people from slavery. So Passover highlighted the deliverance really that they still needed. Not just the oppression of the Romans, but, but the delivery from sin. And little did they know, it was, it was the, the festival that highlighted what, the reason He had come. So Jesus is furious about the pop-up marketplace because He is jealous for His Father's name. And nothing will compete. Nothing will detract from the purity of worship that the Lord deserves. Because worship is, to be offered as a, or worship is not to be offered as a box that is just to be checked off the to-do list. Worship is the point. It's the point. Another English theologian and bishop, N.T. Wright, said, uh, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship Him. And not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we have not yet really understood who He is or what He's done. And that seems to be the case in the temple. And so Jesus makes a scene. And the officials must have seen this as a sort of prophetic act because they don't arrest Him. They ask Him for a sign to authenticate the authority that He is projecting. Jesus says something amazing. In fact, it's a good thing that it was a veiled comment that they didn't understand because it was so outlandish that they would have, they would have crucified Him right then and there. Tear down this temple, He says, and in three days I will raise it again. But Jesus was referring to the temple of His body. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that not only is He the sacrifice, not only is He the fulfillment of the Passover, 
As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, God's still looking for the blood, and I will pass over you, but he's looking for the blood of Jesus on the doorpost of our hearts. But also, Jesus is saying that he's the fulfillment of the temple. He's the new dwelling place of God. He is the place where humanity goes to interact with the living God and receive the forgiveness of our sins. Incredibly important. Incredibly offensive. Unless it's true. John doesn't tell us what happens next. I mean, I guess they let Jesus go. They cleaned up the coins. Maybe they kept selling the cattle and the sheep. Maybe they didn't. doesn't say. The immediate effect of Jesus' actions aren't the point. The point is that Jesus and the Father, together with the Spirit, are worthy of our undivided and undistracted worship. So, what are some of the things that can distract you from worship? What gets in the way? glorying in God's holy name. Let me just offer a few possibilities. Number one, pet sins. Maybe it's gossip or white lies. Maybe it's pornography or too much alcohol. Things that we tell ourselves aren't really that bad. At least it's not as bad as that person over there. Personal pleasures that we turn a blind eye to. We wink to ourselves, and we hope God will too. Bring a blanket and come prepared to sin, right? These things distract us, distract our hearts from worship. Number two, uh, here's one that really gets me, and that's worry. Worry. When we take things into our own hands and rather than give them into to God's hands, we, we don't know how it's going to go. We can't sleep and our stomach's in knots. And let me say, I'm not beating anybody up because I've been there a lot. But we should be aware that, at least on some level, worry is a lack of faith. And therefore, it gets in the way of our worship. Or what about apathy? We're just not really concerned. We're just not thinking really about what God thinks. Not about our life, our relationships, our ethics. doesn't mean we don't believe in Jesus or that He died for our sins on some level. But Monday through Saturday, other things seem more important. Or what about bitterness? A lack of forgiveness, unwillingness to forgive can, can be a huge distraction to worship. Or guilt. When we have some past action that haunts us, and every time we come to communion, the enemy puts it back in our mind who are you to take this? We hear the preacher say that, that all our sins are forgiven, but if he only knew about mine. Guilt can be a huge distraction from the freedom to glory in His holy name. Now, if any of these resonate with you, or, or there's just you know dozens, hundreds, maybe more that that might come up come to mind, you you can take heart because Jesus, as a grace to us, has come to drive out the distractions to our worship. And Lent really is the perfect season to let Jesus come to these corners of our hearts that we might otherwise have been afraid to let Him see. And I want you to notice, He, he drives out the distractions. And He drives out the distractors. But He does not chastise those who would be 
distracted. In fact, those are the ones he's protecting. The whole goal is that he would remove the distractions so that people can glory in God's holy name. So that we can have the relationship for which we were created. That we can give God the praise he deserves and receive the benefit of that uninterrupted relationship. In that light, his vigorous action is grace. So what is distracting you from Jesus? What keeps your eye off the ball? You know, we have this penitential order during Lent. So we've already had the confession of our sins. That's a great time. You can confess your sins anytime. Prayers of the people. Your prayer time, your quiet prayer time while we're setting up communion. It's a great time to offer those things to the Lord. And Father Trent and I are here anytime to help you. Sometimes some people need to just come and confess what they've done, what's been done to us, what's been, what's been a distraction. And we're here for that. But I hope in this Lent you will lay these things down and lift the eyes of your heart to Him alone and glory in His holy name. Amen.